So, may we start? Yay, nay, old man. episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And for this particular episode, I felt it was appropriate to open this show with a new piece of music. Periodically, I do this when it is relevant to one of the films I'm reviewing. And in this particular case, I think it is perhaps the best starting point for one of the reviews I'm going to give. That piece of music that I opened this podcast with was So May We Start, which is the opening scene of the film Annette. Directed by French director Leos Carax, who you heard a bit of his voice at the beginning of that. And that song is an original composition by Sparks, who also wrote the film Annette. And I think that is a very salient way to open this podcast and open this review of the film Annette, which I'll be getting onto a bit later. So that is one of the cinematic films I have in this particular episode. The full rundown for this episode of Yay Naoma is the documentary available in the cinemas, Misha and the Wolves, about a fraudulent Holocaust survivor. The latest MCU blockbuster, Shang-Chi, and The Legend of the Ten Rings, that sparks Leos Carax musical Annette. And on Netflix, I found time to watch a couple of films. I finally got around to Eliza Schlesinger's autobiographical film, Good on Paper, and I also added the film released this week onto Netflix, The Afterlife of the Party. So those are the five films which will be reviewed in this particular episode. And without further ado, let's get right on with it now. Big Screen Misha and the Wolves is a documentary directed by Sam Hopkinson, 
who previously did the rather good three-part Netflix documentary, Fear City, New York vs. the Mafia, and he also got critically acclaimed for his documentary, The Kleptocrat, which also got released some places as The PM, The Playboy, and The Wolf of Wall Street, because it was about a, a Malaysian financial scandal where somebody stole millions of dollars and then apparently financed The Wolf of Wall Street, which, yeah, that sounds like a fascinating story, and I kind of want to watch that now. But anyway, Sam Hopkinson has now released this film, Misha and the Wolves, which played at the Sundance Film Festival and was in contention for the Documentary Jury Prize. And it tells a fascinating story. In 1997, a book was published called Misha, A Memoir of the Holocaust Years, written by Misha de Fonseca. A Belgian-born woman living in Massachusetts in the United States who told her story of being one of the hidden children, Jewish children who were given to Catholic families in Belgium in order for them to survive the war. But she was so ill-treated by her Catholic family that she ran away trying to find her parents. She knew her parents had been taken to Germany, so she started walking there from Belgium and then became a part, essentially, of a wolf pack who took care of her, looked after her, and she managed to survive throughout the war by essentially walking all the way across Germany as the Second World War was going on, helped by wolves. And this extraordinary story was published in 1997 and quickly became a literary sensation. Oprah Winfrey wanted to include it in her book club, which would have guaranteed millions of dollars of sales. Disney were interested in doing a film adaptation. This looked like the next literary sensation. But then, rather unexpectedly, Misha de Fonseca sued her publisher for money that she thought she was owed and completely derailed the enormous success that was guaranteed to happen for such an extraordinary story, such an extraordinary book. And Misha de Fonseca successfully sued her publisher for $22 million, which meant it didn't go on Oprah, it didn't get picked up by Disney, and it essentially bankrupted this tiny publisher who had published the book. The publisher quite naturally started asking questions. I mean, why on earth would Misha de Fonseca not want millions and millions of dollars from this memoir? Something fishy is going on, so she started to investigate. And the publisher started to uncover little hints here and there that indicated that Misha de Fonseca was not telling the truth. And after a lengthy investigative process, 
during which a French film was made of this memoir, Misha de Fonseca was uncovered as a fraudster, as a hoax. She'd made the whole thing up. None of this story of surviving the Holocaust and living with wolves was true. And then the question becomes, why would somebody make up a story like this? And how did it make its way all the way to publishing and all the way to being made into a French film? And this documentary aims to ask those questions. And asks them in a rather interesting way. I think mostly this is a pretty by-the-numbers Talking Heads style documentary, uncovering piece by piece this extraordinary story filled with extraordinary characters. This fraudulent author, Misha Defosaka, the publisher who uncovered it, the radio journalist in Massachusetts who wanted to publicise this story. Eventually, the Belgian detectives, you know, the genealogists who are put on the case and try to figure out exactly who this woman was, where she came from, because she sure as hell wasn't this Jewish girl who survived with wolves. All of these people basically have the talking head attitudes. And it is a, a reasonably interesting and entertaining story. I mean, we start with the the face value story of a little old Belgian lady living in relatively small town Massachusetts who is reluctantly encouraged to share her story at the local synagogue. This extraordinary story of running away from Belgium and trying to walk into Germany to find her parents and being helped along the way by wolves. I mean it's a naturally compelling story. So a local woman, Jane Daniel, who had a tiny, tiny publishing house. I mean, according to her talking head in the film, Jane Daniel had only published one legal textbook before. So this was a huge story. And after much persuasion, much encouragement, Misha de Fonseca writes this book and Jane Daniel publishes it. Jane Daniel starts doing all the, the right things. You I mean she puts it on the radar of Oprah and you know getting onto Oprah's book club is a guaranteed million dollar payday. And it got pretty far into being put on Oprah. I mean they even filmed a segment for Oprah at a nearby wolf sanctuary in Massachusetts, which apparently Misha de Fonseca spent a lot of time at. So they filmed this segment for Oprah with the purpose that it would eventually be part of the program with the book club, and then Misha de Fonseca sued. And Jane Daniel gets this judgment against her for $22 million which is based on the worth of the Disney contract, which was in the pipeline, and the Oprah contract, which was in the pipeline. And since both of those things had skedaddled away once the legal trouble started, this was an unrealistic amount of money, yet Jane Daniel had to pay Misha de Fonseca $22 million. 
and quite understandably, Jane Daniel wanted to know why. So she starts uncovering things and she notices a little thing on a bank document, a insignificant part of these court filings. She notices something on one of Misha Defnosek's bank statements and suddenly, hang on a minute, there's something fishy here. So she starts investigating and eventually the whole house of cards falls apart. And at that point in the documentary, the one genuinely inventive, genuinely surprising thing as far as filmmaking goes happens in this documentary, which I won't go into because, I mean, I basically recommend this film, so it's worth uncovering on its own. But the one genuinely surprising piece of filmmaking happens at that point. And the artificiality of Misha Defosaka's story is aligned with and compared to the artificiality of the filmmaking process itself. And we are asked to question everything that we are told, everything that we anticipate happening, all the things which we think are true just because they seem like they should be true. And actually, that's a rather interesting thing. But, I mean, it's one big moment in an otherwise pretty nuts and bolts documentary. But it does ask that question about the ways stories are created and the way stories are presented and how that affects our perspective on it, particularly when there are also questions of suspecting and asking uncomfortable questions of a Holocaust survivor. We are naturally squeamish about showing any doubt, any questioning of somebody who's had such a traumatic story. And somebody makes the point towards the end, I mean, maybe more questions should have been asked. And there are further revelations along those lines made about Jane Daniel, this publisher, and the questions she should have asked, and arguably the questions she was willfully ignorant of. My reading on this story is that Jane Daniel probably did do some mildly shady things in the publishing of this book, but not to the extent that she deserved to be sued for $22 million. And Jane Daniel seemingly willfully ignored signposts and red flags that she should have picked up on, or maybe, maybe at least should have picked up on, simply because she wanted to tell this extraordinary story. She wanted to be a publishing sensation with this tiny, tiny publishing company, which was not prepared for this story. And then when... The truth is revealed, and the true background of Misha Defosaka is revealed. I mean, that's an even more fascinating story, and arguably a, a still a somewhat compelling story. I mean, and again, I, I don't feel it necessary to go into, but I mean, the true story of what happened to Misha Defosaka during the Second World War is, in and of itself, a rather interesting story, but. It's nowhere near what she claims to have happened when she walked across Europe accompanied by wolves. And the football fan part of my brain was delighted by the fact that part of this story of what really happened to Misha Danforsaka during the Second World War takes place in the 
Brussels suburb of Anderlecht, which I did make note of in passing. But, yeah, it, it is a story, a compelling story, of somebody who arguably is traumatised, but equally is a complete fantasist. And the questions that maybe should have been asked weren't being asked. And, yeah, it, it's compelling. It, it's a fascinating story and well worth exploring as a story. In the US, it is already available on Netflix. And since one of the producers of this documentary is the BBC Storyville strand, then I'm pretty sure at some point in the near future, Misha and the Wolves will be showing up on BBC Four here in the UK. But in the meantime, it's still available certain places in cinemas. And I basically recommend watching it. I think it is a fascinating, strange story. Interestingly told, with this one dramatic filmmaking flourish in the middle. And I think it is a decent film. So for me, Misha and the Wolves is a pretty high meh. Next up is the latest entry into the MCU juggernaut of a universe. <laughs> Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. One of the minor Marvel comic book heroes, which was introduced in the 1970s in the wake of the Kung Fu craze sparked by Bruce Lee. And over the years, I think, has become a little bit more culturally careful. That extends to kind of getting an appropriate director to direct it. This film was directed by Destin Daniel Cresson, who is the awesome director behind Short Term 12 and Just Mercy, who is kind of culturally appropriate. His mother is Japanese-American, but yeah, I think at least Marvel tried, I guess. It's interesting that Chloe Zhao is directing Eternals and not this, if they wanted a, an ethnically correct director. But regardless, Destin Daniel Crescent is great, and I'm glad he's got, or I assume he got, boatloads of money for directing this MCU film. The film stars Simu Liu as Shang-Chi, who's basically a newcomer. He's most famous for the Canadian sitcom Kim's Convenience but he doesn't really seem to have done any film work before. But Sean lives in San Francisco, working reasonably dead-end jobs with his best friend, who he's known since school, Aquafina, who is awesome just being Aquafina. Sean and Katie, played by Aquafina, are just going about their day-to-day -day lives when suddenly one day somebody attacks them on the street. A gigantic Romanian guy, Florin Muntianu, who was the junior Drago in Creed 2, attacks him with a cybernetic sword for an arm. And much to the surprise of Aquafina, Simu Liu is actually awesome at martial arts. And in this 
bus in the streets of San Francisco, Simu Liu manages to kick ass for all these goons who are after him and after a particular pendant that his dead mother gave him. Realising that things are afoot and his estranged father is back in the picture, Simu Liu travels to Macau in order to try and find his estranged sister, with the still incredibly shocked Aquafina in tow. And Simu Liu tells Aquafina that he grew up in this group of martial arts assassins, the Ten Rings, which is run by his father, the legendary Tony Leung. And when he was sent out at the age of 15 in order to kill somebody, he couldn't do it and has since lived apart from his father. But now, Tony Leung wants the pendant that his mother gave him back, so clearly something is up. And once in Macau, after another gigantic action scene, Simu Liu reconnects with his estranged sister, Meng Er Zhang, and together they try and figure out what Tony Leung is up to and try and protect their dead mother's legacy. And eventually they find the mystical village of Ta Lo, where their mother Fala Chen came from, and of course their aunt is being played by Michelle Yeoh. So can Simu Liu, his sister Meng Er Zhang, and his friend Aquafina protect the world from Tony Leung, who inadvertently is going to cause utter destruction throughout the entire world. I said when I watched the last MCU film, Black Widow, that I was kind of done with it. I just don't care anymore, all these intricate stories that connect with each other and you have to remember so many little details of every single little thing before watching one of these films. But I have to say that Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings I really, really enjoy because to some degree it is off on its own in an own little pocket of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, there is a direct link to a couple of previous MCU films, and you do need to have watched two MCU films to understand everything that's going on, but this is not one of those situations where you need revision before watching it. It's a kick-ass action film, I mean, with so many really, really excellent set pieces, I mean, the one on the San Francisco bus is awesome, where Simu Liu just takes out all these goons led by Florian Muntianu, much to the shock of Aquafina, who never knew that her friend was this kick-ass martial artist. And, you know, it's that kind of relationship where there's a, a boy and a girl who've been friends since they were, like, 15, and they would equally, I think, claim that, you know, yeah, we're just friends, there's nothing romantic about it. But at a certain point, Simu Liu takes his shirt off, and Aquafina's reaction to Simu Liu without a shirt 
makes you suspect that at least on Aquafina's side, there's definitely some chemistry there. So no doubt that will be explored in further films because these films are bound to have sequels of some kind. So yeah, there's this kick-ass action scene in the San Francisco bus. There's another one in a scenario I'm not really sure I've seen too much before. In scaffolding outside a tower block in Macau, but scaffolding that is made of bamboo. So it's brittle. And that is a really, really awesome action scene. And then uh, at the end, there's this big, gigantic battle in the mystical village of Tarlo. So, yeah, the action scenes in this film are outstanding. They are everything you would want in an action film. They are everything you would want in a martial arts film. I mean, there's very, very distinct martial arts vibes going on here. I mean, at the beginning, we have a little bit of a prologue, I mean, showing the the story of Tony Leung and the Ten Rings, which I think is a little bit of misdirection at the beginning because the way that I read it, you know, Tony Leung was going to be the hero of this story, but no, actually, he's the villain and he's also immortal and he's running this organization, the Ten Rings. This cadre of assassins and fighters and all this kind of stuff. But eventually he comes across this mystical woman, Fala Chen, and they fight with each other. I mean, you know, tell me your secrets, woman. And she says, No, I'm not going to tell you my secrets. All right, I shall fight you. And Tony Yoon goes towards him, and Fala Chen just dodges everything, avoids everything. It starts out like a fight, then it kind of turns into a dance. I mean, it's very much the wuxia style of something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I got such a strong Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon vibe from that particular scene, as Tony Leung and Fala Chen are fighting each other, which then metamorphoses into kind of a dance, and then it kind of turns into a seduction, as they're still sort of fighting with each other. It's, it, it's beautiful choreography. I mean, it almost comes across like capoeira or something like that, or tai chi. You know, a very flowing, beautiful, intricate movement. I mean, the the connection between these two people as they are quote unquote fighting, but you know, fucking each other with their eyes. It's a really, really beautiful scene, and you see that this bad man who has been for centuries the center of this cadre of assassins actually there's something new now and maybe he does want this woman in front of him and maybe he does want a different life and you buy it you believe it or at least i did i think tony leung is legend of far east cinema and this is another incredibly strong performance i mean i think the central idea of this is that it is possible to drag somebody from the dark side, from evil, to the side of good, it can be done. But if something goes wrong, it takes very, very little for you to be pushed all the way back to darkness. And when it is revealed what Tony Leung's goal is, I mean, after decades away trying to get these particular pendants from both his children once it's revealed why he wants those pendants what his goal is 
it's the perfect kind of villainous role because it's somewhat sympathetic. We absolutely understand what he's trying to do. He's going about it in completely the wrong way, and he's almost certainly being the victim of some level of deception, but we understand what he's trying to do. We are somewhat sympathetic to his goals, and that is, I think, the perfect way to have a villain, and it's what the MCU has done for so long in so many different ways. Have a villainous character who we still understand, who is the hero of his own story, and we can see why he's the hero of his own story. It's just that in this particular case, it's going to end up really, really bad for everybody. And by the end of this film, there are giant dragons fighting each other because, you know, Eastern mythology. And I, and I think the film has been very, very sensitively done as far as that goes. There is so much of this film which is in Mandarin. The opening scenes of the film, you know, this prologue, I mean, introducing the history of Tony Leung, is entirely in Mandarin. I don't think a word of English is said in this film for at least a good five, ten minutes. And I audibly heard groans from behind me in the cinema screen when it was clear that there would be subtitles. But yeah, for the majority of the film, when there are people on screen who would naturally speak Mandarin to each other, they speak Mandarin to each other. And there are subtitles. Conveniently, it is established fairly early in the film that Aquafina, despite being of Chinese descent, doesn't actually speak very good Chinese. So when she's in the scene, they naturally defer to English, which helps out. And there's a very, very rare occasions where two Mandarin speakers actually speak English to each other when they're alone. I mean, there's one instance which I can think of off the top of my head, and that's in the middle of a gigantic action sequence. So, I mean, trying to read subtitles and take in the gigantic action, maybe it would have been an issue. But there's a lot of Mandarin in this, and what seems to be a lot of cultural sensitivity or at least a, a valid attempt at cultural sensitivity. And that includes which cameos we have from previous films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. My guess is that the identities of these cameos will have leaked out by now, whether in official reviews or not, I'm not sure. But I'm going to keep them to myself because it was such a nice moment when I realised, oh, they are going to address some of the cultural insensitivity which has been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe before. What I will say is the idea of the Ten Rings has appeared in the MCU before. And if you can remember where, you know who the cameo is. And there's also another cameo from an MCU character we've seen before. Arguably too, but the CGI doesn't quite count. But there's definitely one other cameo which has a reasonably significant role at the end of the day. So, yeah, 
I'm not going to say specifically what it is other than giving those hints, but it was awesome to see. And the fact that an attempt is being made at a level of cultural sensitivity, which we arguably haven't seen before, I appreciate that. So, yeah, I think nice cameos, the right level of cameos for me. I mean, a recognition that, oh, that character was in a previous film I've seen. But you don't need to know that particularly before going into the film. But the fact it is in there, I really, really appreciate it. This is a long film, but I do think it's kind of awesome. I mean, it's everything you want from a superhero movie. It's everything you want from an action movie. It's everything you want from a martial arts movie. As a martial arts movie, I think this is excellent. There are a couple of niggling questions I still have. And I'm going to reference them in relatively oblique ways so as to try and avoid spoilers. But the questions in my mind remain at the end of the film. Who sent the postcard? Because I'm not sure that's entirely established. And also, who was Simu Liu living with when he started living in America? That's not really established either. So. Yeah, a couple of niggling little issues that I think might have been explained, but yeah, it's it's good seeing a film where the villains are sympathetic. It is about family relationships, you know, an estranged father, an estranged sister trying to reconnect after so much time has passed and so many issues have happened. And, you know, villains are sympathetic in another way. It's deliberately pointed out that when they steal Florian Muntiano's car at a certain point, he drives electric. Even villains in the MCU drive electric, which I thought was rather cool. So, yeah, I mean, this has got vibrancy excitement brilliant fight scenes brilliant martial art scenes and i really really enjoyed myself so for me shang chi and the legend of the ten rings currently available in cinemas is a yay i really really enjoyed myself with this film and finally as far as the cinematic entries go we have annette which opened this year's Cannes Film Festival and is the latest film directed by Leos Carax, who is most famous for his film Holy Motors a few years back, which is one of those films that the art house critical community absolutely loved Holy Motors. I didn't. I wasn't the hugest fan of Holy Motors. I thought it's mannered directing style and its over-reliance on exaggerated performance and music didn't particularly work for me. But I appreciate it on a visual level. And when I heard that Leos Carax was directing the film that the Mail Brothers had written, aka Sparks had written, and it was a film which had original Sparks songs as part of this musical 
film, I was duly interested and duly impressed. So I did make the effort and went along to see Annette, which tells the story of a provocative, abrasive stand-up comedian played by Adam Driver and a world-famous opera soprano played by Marion Cotillard who fall in love, get married and have a child together. Annette. But as is often the case in such films as A Star Is Born or All About Eve, as Marion Cotillard has more and more success, Adam Driver's career starts hitting the skids, and caught in the middle is this very, very strange child, Annette. And when tragedy strikes, it is revealed that Annette, this child, has a special gift or special abilities which is nurtured by her parents and also Marion Cotillard's accompanist played by Simon Helberg. And that's weirdly a very similar role to the one he played in Florence Foster Jenkins as the accompanist to a famous singer. but. Yeah, different films. But as this gift is made famous and arguably exploited, eventually everything must come to an end. And all the while, the soundtrack to this grand, literally operatic romance is provided by the music of Sparks. I opened this particular episode with that clip from Annette at the start of this show because I think it perfectly encapsulates what the film Annette is. This track, So May We Start, is how the film opens. We start in a recording studio where the director, Leos Carax, alongside his teenage daughter, are in a recording studio with Sparks. And Sparks starts singing this song, So May We Start. And then eventually they quickly stand up, start walking out of this studio, and they eventually pick up Adam Driver, Marin Cossiard and Simon Helberg, and they all start singing this song, So May We Start. And this song, So May We Start, is kind of an overture almost. It is telling us the plot of the film. It's giving us hints as to what's coming up. But it is done in this very repetitive way with a simple refrain constantly being part of the mix. So May We Start is the most common line in this opening sequence which takes about four and a half minutes and that's the way that this film goes all the songs have a similar kind of pattern we have very simple phrases which are repetitively and rhythmically 
added to music and they it almost becomes kind of a greek chorus and there's no real hummable tunes in this oh yes you could make the argument that that track so may we start is catchy enough and there's another one we love each other so much which is basically all we see of the relationship between Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver. We don't really see them together apart from this one scene where they sing this song together, We Love Each Other So Much. They sing it to each other, they're walking through a sun-dappled meadow, and they sing this song, We Love Each Other So Much, and almost the entire lyrics of this song, which again, takes place over several minutes, is We Love Each Other So Much. And that becomes a memorable song because We Love Each Other So Much is reprised later in the film in very, very different contexts. So arguably you could say that's hummable. But other than that, what we have here in operatic terms is a lot of recitatives, but very few arias. There's no show-stopping tunes here. There's no big, grand songs. But there are many, many times where this pattern of short phrases used repetitively and repeatedly become a chorus. Adam Driver is one of these very provocative, very confrontational stand-up comedians. He's self-loathing, and critically, he's also audience-loathing. Very much in the same way of somebody like Bill Hicks or Jerry Sadowitz. Maybe a a tiny hint of Andy Kaufman as well. And at a certain point, he takes it too far, and it becomes the kind of very confrontational, very honest non-comedy of somebody like Hannah Gadsby or Tig Notaro. That kind of oversharing attitude eventually becomes part of his act. And because you know, we've already seen him at the height of his powers, he's already this huge, famous comedian, coming in cold to his stand-up routine is really, really off-putting because it doesn't come across as comedy at all. But because the film has been done in such a mannered way, we are not sure if this is a perspective on his stand-up comedy or if this is actually his routine and people are reacting to it but it's not funny it's very provocative it's very confrontational and eventually it goes too far and at that point the crowd in this comedy club starts singing at adam driver get off the stage And this becomes a lengthy sequence of the chorus singing get off, get off, get off the stage, get off, get off, get off the stage. Everybody in the crowd is singing this. And this happens frequently. I mean, when Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver kiss as Marion Cotillard's just come out of the opera house, the paparazzi start singing at them, give us a smile, give us a kiss, give us a smile, give us a kiss. When Marion Cotillard is giving birth to the baby Annette, in the hospital room, the nurses and the doctors start singing, breathe in, breathe out, push, breathe in, breathe out, push, and they start harmonising with each other. 
I mean, this is such an artificial world, such a mannered world, that it's really difficult to connect to, or at least I found it very difficult to connect to. It's got this very hyper-stylized, hyper-real attitude where everything is being sung. Nothing quite makes sense. Nothing seems, you know, quote-unquote, real. And yet here we are. And you know, there are hints at, at themes, grander themes underneath this. I mean, naturally, you know, because it's that kind of film, the relationship between Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver starts collapsing, particularly when they've got the pressure of a young baby in the house. It's never outright stated, but it seems that one of the issues that Adam Driver has is that his wife, Marion Cotillard, goes on stage and dies every night. I mean, that seems to be one of the issues that Adam Driver has. And that's actually a somewhat interesting Nietzschean idea. I mean, Adam Driver, as part of his act, constantly talks about staring into the abyss. But this idea of his wife dying every night and repeatedly doing this and him having to watch this, I mean, I think that's actually kind of an interesting idea, but it's not really explored because we have this very, very mannered, very stylized way in which things are being done. Everything in this film is green. There's green lighting everywhere. There's green hints everywhere. I mean, Adam Driver goes on stage in a green dressing gown, and the lighting in the auditorium is green lights. There's so much of that in this film. It's very, very stylized, and that includes the baby. Similarly to what I was talking about just now with Shang-Chi, there's a very strong chance that what the baby Annette is, what it looks like, has been revealed elsewhere, is now part of the conversation. But in case it isn't, I am going to keep it obscure. When we see the baby Annette, it looks wrong. I mean, there's no polite way to say it. It looks wrong. And then as we see scenes after scenes of this baby and eventually it grows up to be about two or three years old, eventually we see more of this child and we realise what has been going on and what Leos Carax, the director, is doing. The level of artifice he has put on this film and deliberately made this baby the strangest, the most uncanny baby, most uncanny part of this film he possibly can. He has deliberately tried to wrong foot us and put this creepy and mildly disturbing figure at the centre of this film. It's Really, really strange to see what Leos Carax and presumably Sparks wanted to do with this film, wanted to make a net. But it does kind of fit in thematically, but it is really, really disturbing, and it is designed to be really, really disturbing and creepy. And yeah, there's no guessing around it. This is a creepy, creepy looking child. That's there's just no polite way of saying it. And that is a deliberate act and shows 
what Leo's Carrick's and Sparks were up to. And honestly, it's a not very great effect. I mean, I think Annette is a film I mostly admire. I can't say I particularly liked it because it does have this level of artificiality. Even if you went in for the Sparks music, which I, like I said, I basically did, because so much of it is this rhythmic, repetitive stuff and no actual songs in this quote unquote musical. I struggled with it and I struggled with the artificiality. I struggled with the hyper stylized way the film is presented and the child is presented. I struggled with this film. I mean, I watched this film at the Little Theatre here in Bath. It was Friday night. It was the first opportunity I had to watch the film in Bath. It was the first time anybody had the opportunity to watch the film in Bath. And there were about, I don't know, 10, 12 people in this 7.30 screening in the Little Theatre. And by the end of the film, three of them had walked out. And I kind of got it. I mean... uh, This is such an unusual experience. You need to be really, really on this film's wavelength to get anywhere with it. And I just wasn't. I mean, Leos Carax, I think, remains one of those directors who I do kind of admire, but I just don't like his films. And I didn't particularly like Annette. I do think the performances are good. I think the abstract, distant way that the performances have been put on screen, I think, do generally work. And and for that kind of acting, for that kind of performance, I think everybody does an okay job. So it's not a complete wash. And the music is catchy, even though I wouldn't necessarily call it songs. And, you know, this is what Sparks do over recent years. I mean, that track I played at the end of the podcast where I reviewed the documentary The Sparks Brothers, dicking around. I mean, it had a very similar approach. Very rhythmic, very repetitive, short phrases being used over and over again. And that's basically what the entire soundtrack of this film is made up of. So, little disappointed with that. And, yeah, it's... It's a very, very art house film. I mean, apparently Leos Carrick's one best director at Cannes. I mean, I don't know what he was up against, but I'm sure as hell sure it wouldn't be one of my list. But anyway, it's there. It's very, very art house. And if you're on this film's wavelength, you might get something out of it. But for me, Annette is a pretty low, mildly disappointing meh. Netflix and chill. Good on Paper is an autobiographical film written by and starring the provocative stand-up comedian Eliza Schlesinger and fictionalises something which happened to Eliza Schlesinger a few years ago and used to be part of her stand-up routine. If you go online and type into YouTube Eliza Schlesinger lying Brian then you will find a seven-minute routine which she did for Comedy Central about this very story. But after that traumatic event of around 2015, she has turned this story into a feature film 
which is directed by Kimmy Gateward, who is much better known as a comedian and sketch troupe member. She has a collective of female comedians she works with, one of whom shows up at the beginning of this film as a flight attendant. And Kimmy Gatewood is also one of the cast members of Glow as well. So she is quite well known and quite well respected as a performer, but she does have a few directorial credits to her name, mostly on television. This is her feature-length debut, and clearly it helps that you are friends with the female comedians, including Eliza Schlesinger. This film tells the story of a stand-up comedian, played by Eliza Schlesinger, called Andrea, who, after a rather bad audition for a TV role she really wants, gets on a plane in a really bad mood, and, somewhat against her better judgement, strikes up a conversation with the guy sitting next to her on the plane, Dennis, played by Ryan Hansen. And they have a conversation on this plane. Eliza Schlesinger invites her to the gig she's got that night, not at all expecting him to show up. But he does show up. And Ryan Hansen and Eliza Schlesinger start hanging out together, mostly at the Sunset Strip bar, run by Eliza Schlesinger's best friend, Margot, played by Margaret Cho, another very funny female comedian. So Margaret Cho, Eliza Schlesinger and Ryan Hansen start hanging out in an entirely platonic way. Everybody's kind of impressed that he's a hedge fund manager who went to Yale, even though he manages to put into every single conversation he has that he went to Yale, he's still kind of friendly, a nice guy to be around. But gradually, ever so gradually, a physical relationship starts with Eliza Schlesinger and Ryan Hansen until questions start piling up. Why have I never been to your house? Why can't you give any details about Yale, even though my brother, Eliza Schlesinger's brother, did go to Yale, so I know my shit? You've always got an excuse for all these little things that are wrong. And Eliza Schlesinger and her best friend Margaret Cho start becoming very, very suspicious of this guy Dennis, until eventually he is exposed as a complete fantasist and liar who has been existing on the goodwill of his new girlfriend in order to get by. And confrontations must be had. There's a particular brand of film, which I have complained about a few times over the years, most recently in the film The World to Come, starring Catherine Waterson and Vanessa Kirby. The type of film that is an adaptation of a book 
and sticks so closely to the original dialogue of the book that you may as well not have bothered making a film about it. And that's a little bit what I feel about Good on Paper. This feels like a stand-up routine, which has been shoehorned into a visual format, which it isn't necessarily suited for. Throughout the course of the film, we have many clips of Eliza Schlesinger performing her stand-up routines, some of which are about this guy she is hanging out with and then dating. So yes, it does kind of work as an inner monologue for this character. What she's saying on stage is somewhere around what she's actually feeling at that point. But more than anything, it feels like a lengthy stand-up routine, or in places it definitely feels like a lengthy stand-up routine, which just so happens to also have this visual accompaniment, these things being acted out in front of you. And that isn't always the best plan. I mean, the format problems, you know, changing something from a book to a movie or a comic book to a movie, and even a stand-up routine to a movie, do come out here. There is some good stuff here. I mean, the, the bad audition that Eliza Schlesinger has at the beginning of the film which puts her in the bad mood and makes her susceptible to this seemingly nice guy sitting next to her. It's really funny. I mean, she's a better writer than the scriptwriter who's this in front of her. She's told she's too old to play a 35-year-old, yet she's 34. And when she leaves the room, the male producers, directors and screenwriters changed the script in the ways she suggested, but dismissed because she's a woman. I also find it interesting that throughout the course of the film, Eliza Schlesinger's character is pursuing acting to a fault. She's constantly going to these soul-destroying auditions, never getting the part, largely, at least in her mind, because there is another actress who kind of looks like her and kind of started in Hollywood at the same time, but she got the breaks. So now Eliza Schlesinger is deeply jealous of this woman, Rebecca Rittenhouse, and Rebecca Rittenhouse barely knows she exists. And when they do meet up, I mean, she's all huggy, touchy-feely friendly, but Eliza Schlesinger is bitter and cynical and just doesn't accept kindness on face value from this female friend. But when a little bit of kindness, and it has to be said, a little bit of manipulation, comes her way thanks to Ryan Hansen, she puts everything to the side, all her little qualms, all the questions she has, she puts them to the side saying, you know, I'm going to take a risk, and she does, and it doesn't end up well. And by the end of the film, there's some really, really dark stuff. I mean, there's a distinct tonal shift by the end of the film. There's a ostentatious confrontation between these two people, which, as far as I know, did not happen in real life, or at least was not part of the stand-up routine I've seen on YouTube. But this very public, very distinct confrontation between these two people takes a rather nasty turn. 
partially I think this is Eliza Schlesinger as screenwriter getting everything out that she wanted to say to this guy in a very direct, very blunt, very personal way. I think it, it was a definite moment of catharsis for Eliza Schlesinger as screenwriter and then as performer. So I, I think that it does serve something of a purpose. But the character shift, the tonal shift in the character of Ryan Hansen is very different. I mean, it goes into the whole realm of toxic masculinity and male entitlement. And yes, those things are subtext in this film and are definitely part of the conversation in the post-Me Too world. But it doesn't quite fit in this film. This film is ostensibly a comedy, and there are some genuinely funny moments in it. I mean, Margaret Cho and her interactions with Eliza Schlesinger are very, very funny. The excuses that Ryan Hansen comes up with why he can't, you know, why you can't meet my parents, why I can't take you to my house, all this stuff. There are funny moments here. But by the end, it's a distinct tonal shift into some rather uncomfortable territory. And it's an uneasy mix, or at least I found it an uneasy mix, because I was already a little bit uneasy about this film. It's a strange beast. It doesn't necessarily, I don't think, work as a full-length feature film. Perhaps a short film or even a sketch might have been a better format to convert the original stand-up routine, which is, it has to be said, very, very funny. I mean, I do recommend you check out Lying Brian on YouTube by Eliza Schlesinger. The original stand-up routine was funny. I just don't think it should have been converted into a film. It doesn't quite work. But Eliza Schlesinger is funny enough, the character interactions are charming enough, that I do kind of recommend this i mean it's not a passionate recommendation or anything but it is one of those things that it is on netflix so you can just click the button and you'll have a diverting enough time watching this so i think for me that's the epitome of a meh and that's what i will give good on paper which you can find on netflix the second thing I checked out on Netflix this week was a slice of cheesy fluff, because every now and again you want a slice of cheesy fluff. It's a film called Afterlife of the Party, which stars ex-Nickelodeon child star Victoria Justice, and it has that kind of feel to it. The screenwriter is a woman named Carrie Friedel, who has two previous credits on IMDb, both of which ended up on the Hallmark Channel. And the director is a guy called Stephen Herrick. And I looked at that name and I thought, hang on a minute, that rings a bell. Who is Stephen Herrick? I'm sure I've seen a film by Stephen Herrick before. So I clicked on his IMDb page and... Oh my god, he's the guy who directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure all the way back in 1989. His career has taken a very strange turn since then. 
I mean, all throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, he did have some pretty high-profile directing credits in the feature film realm. I mean, he started out doing Critters, which was, you know, a schlocky horror film, but has some charm to it. Ben and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, The Mighty Ducks, The Three Musketeers, the Kiefer Sutherland version, and Mr. Holland's Opus, which got Richard Dreyfuss an Oscar nomination. So, yeah, some very high-profile stuff, and... He also directed the live-action version of 101 Dalmatians. And then in 1998, his career took a bit of a nosedive when he directed Eddie Murphy in Holy Man, which wasn't a big success. But even after that, he came back with what is probably his last really high-profile thing on his IMDb page, which is Rockstar in 2001. The Mark Wahlberg film loosely based on the tribute band guy who took over the lead singer of Black Sabbath. And since 2001 and Rockstar, his career has taken interesting paths. He's done a lot of TV movies. He's done a lot of direct-to-video sequels. He's worked a couple of times for the Hallmark Channel. He's done a couple of TV movies with Dolly Parton. And it's really hard to reconcile the fact that the guy who directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure also directed Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colours and Dolly Parton's Christmas of Many Colours. What the hell has happened? (laughs) But here he is, directing this Hallmark-esque type movie for Netflix. And quite honestly, this film would not look too out of place on the lineup of the Hallmark Channel. It's got that kind of tone. I mean, perhaps a tiny bit more raunchy than you would anticipate on the Hallmark Channel, and perhaps skewed a little bit younger than you would expect on the Hallmark Channel, but still, it would not look too out of place on the Hallmark Channel. Yeah, it's strange what can happen to people in Hollywood over the years, but. I guess I hope that Stephen Herrick is happy with the direction his career has taken. At least he's still working 30-odd years later since Bill and Ted. But anyway, in this film, Victoria Justice plays a party girl. I mean, she is literally a party planner who is spending the week leading up to her 25th birthday celebrating and partying, going out to clubs, drinking dragging along her roommate-slash-childhood-best-friend, Midori Francis. Victoria Justice is the life and soul of the party, has lots of casual friends, has a very exuberant personality, very much at odds with her much more mild-mannered, meeker friend. And when it reaches the point of the night where... Victoria Justice is planning to going on yet another club. Midori Francis says, I've had enough, I'm going home. And these two lifelong best friends have an argument. Midori Francis storms off. Victoria Justice goes off and gets even more drunk. She wakes up the next morning, completely hungover, goes into the bathroom, slips and falls, cracks her head on the toilet, and dies 
just before her 25th birthday, Victoria Justice ends up dead on her own bathroom floor, and she ends up in the between place with her trainee guardian angel, Robin Scott. And Robin Scott tells Victoria Justice that if she wants to go above, then she has five days to fix her relationships with the people she has wronged back on Earth. And that is a rather short list. Her best friend, Midori Francis, who she had this argument with. Her father, Adam Garcia, who she more or less ignores. And her long-estranged mother, Gloria Garcia, who left Victoria Justice when she was a baby and she hasn't really seen since. So can this party girl learn some life lessons, or death lessons, sort out the emotional traumas left behind for her best friend and her parents, and maybe move on up to the better place? This is the kind of film that has a formula. It has a distinct pattern, a distinct formula. You know exactly what's going to happen. It's just the question of how well it's been executed. And in this particular case, I think it's been executed well enough. There are some little issues that could have maybe been polished over a little bit better. At the beginning of the film, Victoria Justice says frequently in dialogue and usually at a rather high pitch, you know, in that squealing young woman way that is kind of irritating. You know, she says to Midori Francis, you're my best friend since we were six. And she says that in dialogue. And she repeatedly says, you're my best friend since we were six in dialogue. Now, part of me thinks that is just really, really lazy writing. And another part of me is kind of willing to give Carrie Freed or the screenwriter a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. For this kind of exuberant, over-the-top, social butterfly like Victoria Justice is, that is the kind of thing that she might actually say. But still, I mean, it is rather blunt, rather obvious. And we have some very obvious signposting, I mean, the, the establishing of everything in this film. I mean, as these two roommates slash childhood best friends are walking to Victoria Justice's party, they bump into a handsome new neighbour who has moved in next door, Timothy Renouf, who also happens to have a cute British accent. They walk past an empty bakery with a sign in it saying, opening soon. And when Victoria Justice comes back to Earth, that bakery is open, and the owner of this bakery, Mifanwi Waring, has kind of become Midori Francis's new best friend. We have the distant relationship with Adam Garcia, Victoria Justice's father. I mean, the not really bothering to connect, I mean, just casually liking one of her dad's posts because she's mildly embarrassed that her dad is even on social media. I mean, Everything is set up in a really obvious, really blunt way, and you just know that everything we see is going to become relevant later. And there's also a little bit of odd writing when it comes to the mechanics of this situation. I mean, what happens is, you know, Victoria Justice, on 
basically the year anniversary after her death, is sent back to Earth in order to try and fix all the relationships. But she can't physically talk to or interact with or communicate with the people she is supposed to help. So how is that supposed to work? But suddenly she can talk to Midori Francis. So that allows her connection, allows her a link to work out all the issues. So if you are going to set up a scenario like this, where the ghost, for want of a better term, cannot communicate with anybody, why then suddenly break the rules just so the plot can function? They're your rules. You make up this fantastical element, so why establish one thing if you are immediately going to break it in a couple of scenes' time? It's not the best writing, it has to be said, but like I said, I think it's good enough. I mean, that may be damning with faint praise, but that's basically what this film is, and kind of what it's designed to be. I think this is a film which is designed to be good enough. And it does have some rather interesting angles taken. I mean, we have seen this type of story before. And I found it kind of interesting in this particular version of the story, how accepting everybody is of this scenario, how the freak out portion, you know, oh my God, my dead best friend is standing in front of me. That doesn't last as long as you would anticipate. And then when Victoria Justice starts putting out flyers for this bakery that has opened since she died in her father's apartment, naturally, I think you would assume, what the fuck is going on? Somebody's broken into my house and put all these flyers out. Instead, Adam Garcia says, okay, what are you doing, Cassie? Why do you want me to go to this bakery? I mean... Maybe it's not coincidental that the attractive and age-appropriate owner of this bakery, Mifanwi Waring, is single. And Adam Garcia just says, okay, Cassie, and accepts it. I mean, there's so much acceptance going on here. And I do like the fact that even though she is dead, Victoria Justice very, very quickly and very convincingly slips into supportive best friend mode nudging Midori Francis to actually take a chance and you know finally after a year of having a crush on the next door neighbor with the cute British accent finally taking a chance and asking him out and you know that would basically be the same scenario if Victoria Justice was alive or dead she instantly slips into supportive best friend mode and and it's kind of nice kind of supportive seeing this connection this community being built up and one small thing i do want to flag up in the week after i saw he's all that with terrible terrible product placement like somebody holding a doritos bag in a completely unnatural way so you can clearly see the logo i mean the terrible product placement in he's all that I do want to point out a way that product placement can be done right, because in Afterlife of the Party, I think they do do it right. At a certain point, after Victoria Justice has come back as a ghost and Midori Francis has accepted that her dead best friend is with her, 
Midori Francis says, oh, by the way, the cute singer that you had a huge crush on, played by Spencer Sutherland, who is a real-life singer, and apparently, even though he's American, was on the UK version of The X Factor. Weird. But Spencer Sutherland has a new album out. Really? We need to hear it now. So she says, hey, Google, play Coop, the Spencer Sutherland character, and a Google Assistant starts up. And then it gets into a discussion, and they start increasing the volume. So the next-door neighbour, Adam Renouf, with the cute English accent, will hear them and maybe come around and ask what's going on. So it becomes a plot point to increase the volume of this Google Assistant. So they do say, hey, Google, increase volume. And that is the way to do product placement. We have several shots of the object in question, several shots of the object in question being used, but it's natural to the plot and it is something that these people would do. And particularly when it turns out that Adam Renouf next door has a connection with this cute singer, Spencer Sutherland, and they end up at a music video shoot for Spencer Sutherland, which has Victoria Justice rather drooling, even though she is dead. I mean, she still has needs, I guess. But yeah, there are good parts to this. And like I said, I think it's good enough. I have a little bit of an issue with the ending. I think the film ends in a place which I think is a little bit too shallow, a little bit too selfish, in order to get a somewhat happy ending for a bittersweet film in which a young woman has died. In order to have some form of satisfactory conclusion for her story, they needed to go a little bit shallow. And honestly, I think it's a little bit counterintuitive to the message, to the lesson of this film. They needed to go a little bit too blunt. And I don't think it quite worked, but it's a happy ending in a relatively cheesy film. And I I can't honestly think of a a better way to do it, but it did feel a little bit of a retrograde step that that is her happy place by the end of the film, despite all the things she's learned and the growth she has had even after she's died. So, yeah, a little bit too saccharine, a little bit too sappy, but charming enough. And I think that is the way I would describe Afterlife of the Party. It's charming enough, it's available on Netflix, and for me, it's a pretty solid meh. Coming attractions. I actually managed to finish this episode, or finish recording this episode, a little bit earlier than I generally do, which hopefully will mean two things. This coming week, I will have the opportunity to tick off a lot of stuff from my to-watch list, which is ever-lengthening. And also, it might also give me an opportunity to finish my July foreplay, which I have started recording, and I'm about a third of the way through recording, but 
I might actually have the chance to finish it this week. So maybe that will be coming <laughs> in the next week, and maybe a streaming special will also be coming in the week. But the next standard episode will have several cinematic films on it. And again, because I'm recording this a little bit earlier than I generally do, I don't have confirmed dates for some of these cinematic films. But they are listed as being out and we shall have to see. There are two films out cinematically which I definitely know I am guaranteed to have access to and they will both be in the show. Firstly, we have Respect, the biopic of Aretha Franklin with Jennifer Hudson angling her way for an Oscar nomination at the very least, possibly even an Oscar win. I haven't actually looked yet to see what the contenders are, but Jennifer Hudson playing Aretha Franklin seems a pretty sure bet to be nominated for an Oscar, so yeah, I am curious about Respect. And there's also the small British film Herself. It's directed by Phyllida Lloyd, who is probably most famous for doing the Mamma Mia movies. And it stars Claire Dunn as a young mother who leaves her abusive husband and is desperately trying to survive with her two small children. The system is not set up to help her. She has no real home. She has nowhere to go. So, she finds some land and decides to build herself a house, which she can live in with her two small children. And yeah, that sounds like a, a slice of gritty social realism, but it's the kind of thing which I think should be paid attention to. It's probably not going to be an awful lot of fun to watch, but yeah, I think another raging against the broken social care system in this country, very much like I, Daniel Blake, was. But yeah, I am gritting my teeth and I will be checking out herself. One film that is listed as coming out this coming Friday, and I assume I'm going to be able to watch, even though I haven't seen confirmed listings for it yet, is a film called Cop Shop which is another film directed by Joe Carnahan, and I recently reviewed the film he released onto Amazon Prime, Boss Level. But Joe Carnahan, once again, teams up with Frank Grillo in a kind of Rio Bravo Assault on Precinct 13 kind of scenario, where an undermanned police station comes under attack when people are trying to get to a prisoner in this rundown police station played by Gerard Butler. I think it's played by Gerard Butler and one of the people trying to get to him is Frank Grillo or maybe it's the other way around. But this young black female cop has to survive the night with dangerous people after the guy inside. So yeah, that sounds like a, a contained little thriller. And Joe Carnahan is generally good value for money. I mean, I, I did like Boss Level for what it was. So yeah, only a couple of weeks later we have Cop Shop coming out. and. I would be surprised if I couldn't find a screening of Cop Shop. At the very least, it should be on at the Showcase Deluxe over in Bristol. 
but their schedule hasn't been released yet. So I'm assuming I will be able to watch Cop Shop. I am less confident about the other film, which is purportedly coming out at the cinema this coming Friday, a documentary called The Lost Leonardo. This is a documentary about the most expensive painting in the world, this undiscovered masterpiece, which the expert said, hang on, this is a Leonardo, and it sold for something like $400 million or something like that, and apparently has since basically disappeared. Nobody knows exactly where it is or exactly what happened to it. So this is a documentary tracking this particular painting, tracking the art world, tracking the existence of this painting. You know, what does it say that this painting, when it has the Leonardo name attached to it, has something like $400 million attached to it. So, yeah, a, a documentary about the art world, about this mystery, about greed. And, yeah, that does look absolutely fascinating. But I don't have very much confidence that I will actually have access to it because it's the kind of film which easily might not be shown in any of the cinemas that I can get to here in Bath or Bristol. So... If I can find a cinema screening of The Lost Leonardo, I will check it out. And released onto Curzon Home Cinema this week, so added to the list, but I probably won't be watching it just yet. I'm going to wait for it to become cheaper, although that is sometimes a very lengthy process. I'm still waiting, and have been for quite some time, for the Czech film Servants to become available cheaply. but. In any case, eventually, although probably not next week, I do want to check out the Norwegian film Ninja Baby, which is based on an independent graphic novel from Norway about a hard-drinking, hard-partying, somewhat irresponsible young woman who's drifting through life. Maybe she wants to be a cartoonist. Maybe she wants to be a gardener. She has no clear ideas, clear directions. And one day she finds out she's pregnant and has to work out what to do about it and also work out who the father is, which is somewhat up for debate. And all throughout this self-discovery journey of what to do, who the father is, whether she either wants the baby, a little cartoon baby starts commenting on everything that she is doing. Her little sketches come to life and the ninja baby starts talking to her. So yeah, that sounds very, very interesting. And I will eventually get around to Ninja Baby, although probably not next week, because it's probably going to be rather expensive on Curzon Home Cinema. So when that becomes cheaper I will check it out. And Actually, I, I really should have a proper look around to see if the film Servants has become available yet. A Czech film about a couple of seminary students in communist Czechoslovakia who have to decide whether it's worth going through with their vows and becoming priests when they know they're going to become tools of the communist state and going to be under constant surveillance by the secret police. So. You know, the power of faith versus the power of totalitarianism. And Servants does look very, very interesting, and I will 
have to have a proper look again to see if that's available yet. On my tablet, and hopefully I will have the opportunity to watch some of these films this week with a little bit more time on my hands, we have the two Kelsey Grammer films, The God Committee, where he is a transplant surgeon with ethical questions, and there's also The Space Between, where he is a clear avatar for Brian Wilson, you know, the reclusive musical genius who maybe has to re-enter the world. And there's also the film How to Deter a Robber, where a couple of teenagers have to go all home alone on a couple of home invaders in a remote Wisconsin snowbound cabin. There's also the film Jumbo, where Noemi Merlant from Portrait of Lady on Fire falls in love with a fairground attraction. There's also Lapsis, a low-budget sci-fi about the gig economy. Giddy Stratospheres, Norse biographical film about the Camden indie scene, the police procedural What We Found, the new Megan Fox film Till Death, where she wakes up handcuffed to her dead husband in a remote snowbound cabin. That looks kind of interesting. And on Amazon Prime, we have the mildly Oscar Beatty Weepy Our Friend, the over the top action movie Stone Cape Beckinsdale Jolt. And released this week onto Amazon Prime, we also have Cinderella, which is a brand new musical written and directed by one of the people behind the Pitch Perfect movies and produced by James Corden. It's a new musical version of Cinderella, and they seem to have done kind of a halfway house between how you do a Cinderella in the modern era. If you're doing a musical, either you have completely original songs or you do the Moulin Rouge thing of having appropriate pop songs. And in this version of Cinderella, they seem to have done both. You also have either a traditional fairy tale version of the story or you update it to the modern day and have a feminist modern perspective on it. And again, they seem to have done both. It is set in a medieval-ish fairy tale-style kingdom, but Cinderella doesn't want to get married to the prince. She wants to run her own business, and getting the prince to pay attention to her is a way to get her business off the ground. So, yeah, it looks like a very mixed bag, and the reviews of Cinderella have not been particularly good, which quite honestly makes me want to watch it all the more because what on earth is this film so yeah i do want to check out cinderella on amazon prime on apple plus tv we have coda with a hearing teenage girl of deaf parents trying to get self-determination on disney plus we have the film vacation friends where Loud and exuberant, John Cena causes chaos for mild-mannered Lil Ral Howery at his wedding when John Cena shows up and invited. There's also the Shudder film Scare Me, which is technically a film from last year, but I've only just heard about it when I looked up Werewolves Within, because the director of Werewolves Within, Josh Rubin, which I really, really liked, I saw that he had this film on Shudder Scare Me where Josh Rubin himself plays an aspiring writer 
who goes away to a snowbound cabin, which is a weird theme of these films. But he's in this snowbound cabin and an actual published author played by Aya Cash shows up and they stay up all night and tell each other scary stories and things get weird, or at least that's what it looks like from the trailer. So I am curious about Scare Me, even though it doesn't fully fit in to this podcast because it is rather old now. And also released directly onto Sky Cinema this week is a film called The Outside Story, in which Brian Tyree Henry plays a somewhat reclusive man who is still dealing with a breakup very recently and just wants to stay in his house and, and work on his computer, you know, do his job. But one day he gets locked out of his apartment and has to actually talk to the people around him and find community in this little block in New York. And yeah, that looks like an interesting little film, and I do like Brian Tyree Henry. So The Outside Story, which is directly downloadable onto my Skybox, will be on the list as well. On Netflix, we have the Russian comic book adaptation Major Grom Plague Doctor, the French genre piece How I Became a Superhero, the high-concept German horror Blood Red Sky, Jean-Claude Van Damme having fun in The Last Mercenary, John David Washington trying to survive running across Greece in Beckett, Jason Momoa taking down murderous corporations in Sweet Girl, the documentary about the guy behind the Joy of Painting show and the dark paths his legacy took in Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal and Greed, the German thriller Black Island, the harrowing 9-11 drama Worth, and added to Netflix this week, or this coming week, is a German film called Prey, which is yet another most dangerous game type of thing, where a group of German men on a bachelor party go out into the woods, go hiking, you know, go climbing, and start being shot at. I mean, how many times have we seen this story? I mean, we've seen it very, very recently with, even on Netflix, with the Swedish film Red Dot and the Spanish film Below Zero both within the last 18 months. But yeah, this is another people being shot at movie, but why not? It's on Netflix, I might as well click on the button. So I do want to check out the German film Prey. There's also a French true crime documentary, which looks kind of interesting, The Women and the Murderer, about the efforts of a police commissioner and a victim's mother who teamed up to try and get arrested a man who was killing young women in the eastern parts of Paris in the late 90s. And apparently they succeeded. So that looks interesting. And what is probably the highest profile film on Netflix coming up this weekend is a film called Kate. Now, one of my guilty pleasures, one of the films that I love unreasonably, despite nobody else particularly caring about it, is a film called DOA, 
from the early 90s, Dennis Quaid finds out he's been poisoned with a slow-acting poison and has 24 hours to work out who killed him. And he drags along for the ride, rather reluctantly, Melanie Griffith. And I love DOA. It is one of my guilty pleasures. I think it's cheesy. It probably doesn't hold up to much scrutiny, but I did love DOA as a kid. And this film, Kate, has something of a similar premise, albeit in a massively over-the-top action movie kind of style. Because Kate, of the film, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, is a kick-ass assassin who takes no bullshit, will kill people with impunity, and she's been given a slow-acting poison and has to work out in 24 hours who has killed her and goes on a murderous, bloody reign of vengeance in order to find out. So, that sounds awesome. I mean, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is an actress I really admire. I mean, all the way back to... Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I mean, she was also excellent in Birds of Prey. So yeah, Mary Elizabeth Winstead as action star really does intrigue me. So yeah, I am curious about Kate, even though it's another one of those over-the-top, exuberant female action films. I mean, that should make an interesting double bill with Jolt, actually, wouldn't it? But yes, I do want to check out Kate on Netflix. So, as I said, hopefully sometime this week I will be able to release my July foreplay where I recount my four most recommended films released in the UK during July. Maybe I'll even have time to record a streaming special where I tick off a lot of stuff from my to-watch list. But the next standard episode will definitely have reviews of the cinematic films Respect and Herself, almost certainly have reviews of the cinematic film Cop Shop, almost certainly have a review of the Sky Cinema film The Outside Story, and any other films I managed to squeeze in along the way. So that is what is coming up in the next standard episode and a reminder that the one yay in this particular episode was Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It's everything you want from an MCU film, it's everything you want from an action film and it's everything you want from a martial arts film. It's got enough cultural sensitivity, some really nice callbacks to previous MCU entries and I really really enjoyed it. So Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is this episode's Yay. And with that said, all it remains for me to do is say this has been Yay Nay Omer presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been host, Connor Gacy, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Intro music for this episode comes from the Annette soundtrack, performed and written by Sparks, used with a liberal interpretation of fair use. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure. Ah!